My name's Zeki, and this is my dad's podcast, Rock and Roll Rabbit Hall. Motley Crew, yeah! <laughs> Hey guys, thank you so much for checking out the podcast again, or if it's your first time, welcome. And a special thanks for the listeners in Norway as we made it to number four in the music podcast charts there this week. Four. A big Morton Harker to you all. A couple of weeks ago in one of the booze episodes, I hinted that I may do a Motley Crew episode and I had at least 150 to 200 kilos worth of people hit me up saying they would dig that. So thanks to Ross Etherington and Luke Plummer. So for this episode, I'll present the series episode five, Motley Crew. So Motley Crew are a pretty underrated song band in my opinion. And Mick Mars is as good as any of the rock guitarists from that era. And Nicky Six is a super underrated songwriter and lyric writer and one of my bass Elvises. And for those of you who can read, I definitely recommend checking out their book, The Dirt. And for those of you who can't read, or can't read very well, you can check out the movie. It's not as good as the book in my opinion, but it's still a very good fun watch. So I'm not going to do the guys' life stories before Motley Crue, or much of their dating or personal lives, because I don't really give a shit about that stuff. But we will of course get to all the great rock and roll stories, but I'm going to focus mainly on the great songs off their first five albums five albums which I know every note and every word to and focused on the period from early January 1981 to February 1992. So let's pick this story up on the 17th of January 1981 when Nikki Six left the band London and started rehearsing with Tommy Lee and a singer-guitarist called Greg Leon. They also had a singer called Odine Peterson for a few minutes in 1981. Motley Crue did have another singer. We had this guy that lasted about two days. Um, it was real strange. Leon moved on and Nikki Six and Tommy Lee started to hunt for other musicians and soon met guitar players Robin Moore, real name Jeff Gill, and Bob Deal, fake name Mick Mars. And the guys found Mick through an ad he placed in a paper. Tommy and Nicky met each other through a, a friend of theirs that they had both together, and they found me through an ad in the paper. Loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player, me. I got a call from Nicky. He shows up, he looks like something out of the Adams family. He's standing at the front door, we're going, wow, this is wild, man. Let's, let's listen to this guy play. He played unbelievably, brought his Marshall stacks inside Nicky's little house that he lived in, and he was just cranking. So Mick was auditioned by Robin Moore, Tommy Lee and Nikki Six and was hired and Robin Moore was fired. 
but it turned out that Nikki and Mick had met previously. I was working in this liquor store and Mick came in and asked me, you know, if I was a musician or whatever. I said, yeah. And uh, I said I was like into Aerosmith and uh, Ted Nugent, uh, you know, Kiss, stuff like that. And it was happening back in like 1979, 78. And Mick, Mick was into like Bebop Deluxe, uh, bunch of weird jazz, Jeff Beck. So instantly we didn't get along, instantly. And I think he left the store, told me to fuck off or something, you know. I swear to God, and that's how we met. And then that night, he, well, he goes, well, if you want to see a real guitar player, come down and see me and play in this place called The Stone Pony. And he was in a band called Spiders and Cowboys. And I went in there and he was just ripping on the guitar, doing a slide guitar solo with the mic stand and everything. Blew me away. So in 1981, put Motley Crue together, Mick comes in and, uh, you know, he's auditions for the band. You know, we're playing together. For God, it must have been a month. And one day I just like kind of, I went, are you that guy? And he goes, I thought you were that guy. And we hated each other. We met. But now we're like best friends. So the first song that Mick played with the guys was a song called Stick to Your Guns. And here's a bit of the demo song recorded in April 81. Stick to your guns. I like what it has to say lyrically. I like how it's got that kind of halftime. And then it goes in as kind of a cheap trick type thing. It's very herky jerky, a lot uh, similar to like Too Fast for Love in the sense. I always loved that song. And I think it'd be fun for Molly to go in the studio and like recut that. Because like we did that, it was like, you know, we probably cut it in a couple hours just as a demo. But there's something special about that song. I mean, most of us know the story of Kim Valley, but right. he you know, started the Runaways, right. and he was always like in there hustling and putting bands together, and he was always on the Sunset Strip. And he saw me you know, in London and saw something in me and you know, came up to me and started talking to me and, and said, um, I got some people if you want to write music for. And uh, one of them was Blondie. So I just wrote Stick to Your Guns, and I went to his apartment, which, yeah, I was, I was so unaffected at that time. I thought I'd go to Kim Fowley's mansion. I went to this, like, kind of rundown, gross apartment in Hollywood, and he had a record collection on the floor and uh, a turntable on the floor, and I played him on bass, Stick to Your Guns, and he goes, great, I'm going to give it to Blondie, and took half the publishing, and... Um, I, and then I heard they didn't like it. Now, what's funny is uh, Debbie is managed by my manager, Alan Kovac, for almost the same amount of time. I've been with Alan for 27 years. I think she's been in there with Blondie or 24 or something. And I see Debbie sometimes, and I always forget to bring it up. Mm. But I also don't want to be shut down. It's like, hey, do you ever hear that song, like, Stick to Your Guns? And she's like, 
oh, that song was horrible. <laughs> or, or I have no idea what you're talking about and you just got scammed. So, but yeah, that's, that's a good question. And that, that was a really cool song. So I jumped forward a little bit there. But Tommy Lee knew a singer, Vince Neil, from their school days. And the band approached Vince to join. And so Nicky goes, Tommy, you know, don't you know any other guys? So I go, yeah, I went to school with this guy. He's my bud, you know, but he's in another band. He goes, well, it doesn't matter. Let's just, you know, we'll go steal him out of that band. I was playing at the Starwood one night, and, and the three of them came down. He blew out the first audition. We called him. We're all waiting for him. We're waiting. And they're all looking at me. Tommy, where's your bud? I go, oh, he said he was coming, man. I don't know. And I never showed up. So I drove by his house and said, man, what's up, dude? Why didn't you come by? And he said, well, I don't know if I want to play with you guys, you know. And, and it was just real weird. And then finally, I guess some weird, weird happened in his band. And he did come the next day and he auditioned and that was it. So Vince Neil joined the band on the 1st of April, 1981. And the lineup was complete with Vince on vocals, Tommy Lee on drums, Mick Mars on guitar and Nicky Six on bass. And by the end of April, they had recorded a four-song demo with Public Enemy Number 1, Take Me to the Top, Stick to Your Guns, which we heard earlier, and Toasted the Town. How the fuck was that? It was very good, Stephen, but that's the wrong toast. So the band didn't yet have a name, and here's Vince talking about the band name that Mick suggested, and also the first band name that Nicky suggested. He said at one time he was sitting around with all of his friends, and someone comes in and goes, isn't this a motley-looking crew? Oh, and he cool. goes, well, that's, that's kind of cool. So we wrote it down. I mean, we were going to call the band Christmas. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Hi, I'm Christmas. <laughs> so they changed the spelling from M-O-T-T-L-E-Y-C-R-U to what it is now. And someone suggested to add the umlauts above the letters O in Motley and U in Crew, probably to attract the Norwegian market. And the umlauts were supposedly inspired by the Luenbrau beer. The meaning of Motley Crew. Motley, uh, the word Motley means crazy, discolored, um, tattered, uh, sleazy. Sleazy, yeah. And Crew is a, a gang of, of uh, four or more. And so obviously <laughs> we're a Motley we, Crew. We just misspelt Crew to have a little bit of uh, humor to it. And here's the guys talking about the early days. We used to experiment in our apartment and, you know, we'd blow stuff up all the time. That, that's where we, we learned how to light Nikki on fire. I think I was usually the one that came up with the idea, and then they were usually the ones that nodded their heads, and so it always ended up being me that, you know, got torched. One day he just, he goes, hey T-Bone, you know, do we got any rubbing alcohol around? I go, yeah, I think there's some in the, you know, in the bathroom. We all lived in this one apartment together. And I go grab the rubbing alcohol, and, and, uh, and Vince and and I would douse and Nikki with, and we'd put it on, he was wearing leather pants so he wouldn't get burned, right? I mean, we were trying to be safe about this. And we just d- put it on, on his, on his, like from his knees down to his shoes. And then we just light him on fire and you stand there burning. <laughs> then we took that to the stage. Even if it was a little hokey at times, you know, it, it worked. Got a little apartment, me, Vince, and uh, Nikki. And I'd go over there, of course, periodically and stuff to, see what they're up to. It was such a run-down place. There was huge piles of trash. Roaches were everywhere, so we'd take the hairspray and a lighter, and we'd just, like, they'd, you'd see them just going up the wall. We'd like... We would play at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which is right down the street, and after the show, I'd just go, 
everybody let's just go to our place i mean our apartment was was this big there would be two three hundred people in a, this little two-bedroom apartment people are throwing through the windows um people are passing out cops are coming kicking in the door the police had kicked in the door so many times that the the bolt was was broken on it david lee roth would, would come to a lot of our shows and we're all sitting around doing coke and Somebody had, had pounded on the door, and the door just kind of fell off his hinges and like fell right on Dave. <laughs> we would go to like the you know the place and print up a, a, a ton of posters, staple guns, and we would just go all over Hollywood, up and down the canyons, every telephone pole, putting up our posters, you know, to come see us at the Troubadour, or the Starwood. We're like a little like a little like street team gang. Like we would go out and just plaster the place at night. The word of mouth got around that there's this band, Motley Crue, and they put on this really crazy stage show. You know, within six months, we were, we were headlining sold-out shows on, on the Strip. We only made $20 a week. That's all we got. And it came like Christmas time and Thanksgiving and all that stuff. So we never had money to buy a Christmas tree or a, a, a turkey for Thanksgiving. So we'd go down to the store, and um, I'd, I'd wear a big jacket, and Vince and Nikki and Mick would stuff my jacket underneath with turkey pot pies. I mean, we couldn't, even <laughs> steal, we couldn't even get it together enough to steal a turkey, you know? So we had those little turkey pot pies, and so we're all sitting around, and going, oh, this is great, man. Um, and a Christmas tree, some, some girls bought us a Christmas tree because we couldn't afford one, and we had a beer can on the top for a star, you know, and little panties and stuff just all draped around it to make it look something like a Christmas tree. It was pretty funny. Cockroaches, TV dinners all over the place. Just a toilet. So the band started their own record label, Leather Records, spelled L-E-A-T-H-U-R, with rock and roll amulets over the U. Tusen tack. Så hyggelig av dig. And released a double A-sided single, Stick to Your Guns and Toast of the Town. How the fuck was that? And here's a bit of the Sex Pistols and Sweet influenced Toast of the Town.
How the fuck was that? We pooled our money together and we got enough money to record two songs and make a 45. We recorded those to get people to come up to the front, you know, to stand near us. So we go, come here, here's a record, come on, ah, stay there. <laughs> We'd be playing, Vince would be going, We'd just be flinging them out, and pretty soon, it was like, it took off like a, like a weed. So by November 1981, the band had recorded their debut album, Too Fast for Love, through their leather label, and it was released on November 10, 1981. And here's the band talking about recording the album. Man, our first recording session was scarier than shit. Uh, it's really a blur. We did it so fast. It fucking freaked me out, man. I mean, never been in a studio before. Fucking so green, man. I didn't really have a clue. I just knew I dug the music, and I just went in the studio, put my headphones on, and beat the fuck out of the drums and played the music, you know? Had, like, a really good time. I didn't really know the words. So if you listen real carefully, you can hear me turning the pages. We'd never done one before, so you're just tripping out. You're so excited to be in the studio, and before you know it, it was over. And I was like, wow, it's over. And I didn't really try, I didn't grasp it, you know? I was so excited to be in there, I didn't really notice. It was really scary. It was, it was really an experience. For the most part, it was like us doing everything on our own, uh, searching for the right studio, you know, that we could afford, you know. You know, I think it cost us, what, three grand to make, and we did it in just a couple days. I mean, it was basically just a, a glorified demo tape. Nobody knew what they were doing, which is, I think is the beauty of that record. It's why it sounds like the, the way it is. Everyone's just, we got in there, we're like, whoa, microphones, tape machines, you know, let's do this. We were just like, okay, one, two, three, four, go. Like nobody really thought much about anything. Nobody overthought anything. Everybody just played. Playing songs that we've been playing live in clubs that were tested, like we rock these things. These things were ready to be recorded. They weren't like, hmm, let's try this and see if this works. We just hit, the, we just hit record and went for it. So Too Fast for Love was remixed and parts were re-recorded and it was re-released on the August the 20th, 1982, after the band had signed with Electra Records. Selling out, you know, through Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Whiskey, and it's all kind of snowballed really quickly for us. You know, the word of mouth with the album, and it sold oh, 20,000 records, you know, but for a club band, that was really respectable, and that's what got the, the uh, record labels interested. They said, oh, if those guys can do 20,000 records, in just LA and Phoenix, we could probably make a lot of money with these guys. You know, we signed with uh, Electra Records and they brought in uh, uh, Roy Thomas Baker, who's famous for doing the cars and, <clears throat> and uh, those really polished albums. He heard it and he goes, oh man, this is a mess. So I was like, I went, I know. <laughs> to a lot of people, he, he wrecked the record. You know, he, they brought him in to to just clean it up. And I think he took away all the, the, the kind of uh, real, uh, the heaviness of the, of the album. There's actually four versions of that album. Not only quality, but even just artwork. And uh, little subtleties that you would never know unless you're in the band and go, yeah, this was the second version. No, this is the third version. And uh, it was kind of cool for collectors. A lot of people go, yeah, I got the first record. I go, no, it's like the third. <laughs> I know for, for us that that first album was a glorified demo, and that's what's magical about it. No one would sign us, nobody. Uh, they wanted us to cut our hair and, and play like nice little pop songs, 
and we, you know, we put out our own album. It cost $7,000 to make the album. And uh, we played club gigs to get the money. And we, we owed, like, still $4,000 to, uh, to the recording studio after. And we could only get, like, $3,000 left. And we got a manager at the time who worked as a financial backer. And we uh, built two big drum risers and two large amp screens. And everything was oversized and animated. And we'd go into uh, clubs where they were used to having these bands play that would have, like, a little Fender Princeton and a little tiny bass amp. And they would just stand there and play. We'd go in and trash the place, you know. So the album Too Fast for Love has nine songs on it, all of which I love, and it's probably my favourite crew album. Just so raw and rocking. Yeah, like I said earlier, Nikki's lyrics on it are great. Mick's solos are super melodic. Tommy's energetic drumming's awesome. And Vince's vocals are great too. It was just a perfect, raw, honest, energetic, dark and a little bit scary rock and roll storm for my young ears when I first heard it. And if pressed for a few favourite songs off there, I'd have to go with Come On and Dance, Public Enemy Number One. Loved Nikki's straight bassline and fills in the verses of Starry Eyes.
always loved the chromatic ascending guitar riff in the title track, Too Fast For Love. But there's actually an alternative intro, which didn't make it onto the album. And let's have a listen to it here. So it's everything before the riff. And just as a side comedy note, it still to this day sounds to me like Vince sings too fast, you're too fat for love every time. Let's check it all out here. If you play the riff from Too Fast for Love on 10, it is so raw. It's, you know, there's no reverb on it. There's no compression on the album. There's no bass player playing along. It's so raw. When Ask Nikki his favorite. You know, I like on with the show. I think that's that's my favorite. Me episode within an
here's Nicky talking about the character Frankie, which is his real name and his dad's real name also. You can check out episode eight and nine's name changes for more on Motley Crue's real names. Some say it was suicide, but we know how the story goes. It's me saying, you know, the story goes, F you, dad. Right. Like that was like me killing myself in, in, in my own song. Who's Frankie? Who's Frankie? Who's Susie? And right. What is all this? And, you know, we've all heard like great Springsteen lyrics and stuff where he's got these characters. And But it wasn't like a hardcore thing. I remember I was like writing the lyrics and I was like, like no one wants to use the name Johnny in a song anymore. It's been used so many times. Such a great character, you know. So it's like, you know, Johnny died just the other night. Is it? It's going to work. I was like Frankie, and I, and I remember thinking, "Oh, that's kind of funny," because I had just changed my name. It wasn't like I was mad. It was kind of you know funny, and you know I I never even like told the band because it wasn't like a big deal. It was like, "Hey guys, guess what I'm doing in this song?" It was just as a lyricist, um, as a storyteller, and someone who loves telling stories. You just writing and writing and writing, and. And I write for Vince's voice, 100% write for his voice, the way he sings, the way he breathes. And so I'm usually thinking about that. And when I'm kind of getting into my, into the lyrical side of it and doing stream of consciousness stuff, it's like, I'm always like tempo wise, beat generation and Vince generation, right? How those kind of rhythmically line up. And uh, I love writing for his voice because he has this Gatling gun thing, which is exciting for me to write for. It's really exciting for me to write for. It's not like moon, June, fire, desire. It's like this, I got something to say, but this guy's going to deliver the message. and It's going to be like, you know, a Molotov cocktail. And here's Nikki in 2021 with a story about the character Susie in the song. Susie Maddox and we started trying to find them and he called me and he said hey um Nikki I found I found your first girlfriend I go like she's still in Jerome Idaho I was 13 so um he said no she's like in Utah and she's married and you know she has a Facebook page but there's no social media there's no any way to get a hold of her there's just a a landline he goes, what do you think I should do? And I go, let's call it. So he calls and he goes, hi, I'm Alex. I'm working on a book about Frank Ferrana. And she goes, I remember Frank. And he goes, would you, you know, be open to talk about it? And Frank would like to talk to you. So started saying, where did uh, Frank Lee go to after I heard he moved to Seattle? And then he kind of starts, you know, backtracking and ended up in Los Angeles. He says now he lives in Wyoming with his wife and daughter, and he's got four, four older kids. And she goes, oh, well, what did Frank ever end up doing? And he's like, oh, well, he tours. And she goes, what do you mean? And then he goes, well, like he's in a band. And she's like, Frank's in a band? <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like kind of, that moment where he's like, oh, wow, this is happening in real time. This is so innocent and so perfect. What band? Motley Crue. Dead Silence. And she goes, I had a Motley Crue album in my hand one time. 
And I looked at the photo and I go, that looks just like my first boyfriend, Frankie. And she looked down and said, Nikki Six. So shouldn't even buy the record. <laughs> <laughs> and just some personal Mick Mars nerdery on the second solo from On With The Show. For me, it's part one of a solo trilogy spread out over the first three Motley Crue albums. And all of them just happen to be my favorite songs from each of those three albums too. But I'll get to the other two later. But here's the great melodic recurring themed solos from On With The Show. I love it how the guitar solos are doubled and panned hard left and right with no rhythm guitars. And keep one ear out for Nikki Six's super thick bass line. And here's solo number one. And solo number two, which I'll touch on later as well. I'm just going to play it again because I know no one was paying attention to the bass. But anyone that says that Nikki Six can't play can seriously go and fuck themselves. That includes Nikki himself. How the fuck was that? And hang in there with me. I'm nearly done on my On With The Show side rabbit hole. But here's the original version off their leather release before Roy Thomas Baker redid it. And they've definitely had Vince re-sing it again. also reckon they've had Mick redo his rhythm guitars is on the Electra version the doubled guitar just when Tommy's drum comes in actually goes a little bit out of time but it definitely adds to the charm of the song and you can check it out here one day we just went in there started like you know messing around and, and uh, Nicky said you know like hey listen to this and he was like he started like this thing that was kind of a I don't want to say a mess, but it was a mess. Showed up at uh, rehearsal and started jamming this song, and it, it, it turned out to be Livewire. And so we took it like to a whole different level, which made, uh, gave Motley Crue its real sound. It's been a, a crowd favorite. It's been a band favorite for 30 years. You know? Terry Bozio had his band, and they had Walking in L.A., Nobody walks in L.A. And um, he, he heard it and he was like going, oh, wow. Sound like, like this big monster thing. And, you know, and a few other bands that were rehearsing there too were, were saying like the same thing, that, like that's really a great song. We try to keep things very anthem sounding, very simple to sing along to, so you don't have to be a singer to sing, you know? You can sit there and scream, because I'm alive! Bye, wire, right? And it's simple. When I got together with Tommy 
and we started we having Tommy having this this amazing sense of rhythm uh, started pulling out of the song something that that was really unique and we had a very um, very just sexual backbeat to it and it's just pounding and the drums are ripping the guitars are ripping it's full on as you can pretty much get if we didn't play it we would get so much hate mail because uh, people just love that song you know whether you were grew up with us you know and we're, we're there from the beginning listening to that song or if you're like a new crew fan at you know 15 16 years old it's just one of those songs that really kind of sticks to you. It's just very raw. And Livewire was was really a lifestyle song. It was really, it says, you know, plug me in, I'm alive tonight. And it was really about being at that age when, you know, all that really mattered was getting out in the scene and mixing up in the scene and, and trying to discover new art and music and, and fashion and what was going on in Los Angeles and trying to find something that wasn't really there. And, and in the end, you know, we ended up kind of starting something. This is a song from way back in 1982. It has a special meaning to me because it's the first song that we played together that really made us a band and gave us a sound of Motley Crue. It goes something like this. first bigger tour took them to Canada where they found themselves in some trouble including they were held at Edmonton Airport for wearing their spike stage clothes which were considered weapons and Vince had some porn magazines in his carry-on and the gig in Edmonton also had a bomb threat called into it they were both staged PR stunts Tommy also threw a TV out of the hotel window and here's another incident that happened in Canada they call themselves Motley Crue. They hail from Southern California, and it seems someone in Edmonton wishes they had stayed there. An unidentified caller phoned police last night to say the group would be done away with while they were performing. They are currently booked into Scandals, an Edmonton nightclub better known for punk rock acts than the heavy metal sound that Motley Crue specializes in. Band leader Nikki Six says maybe Edmonton just isn't ready for the sound of Motley Crue yet. Who's got it in for you in Edmonton? I don't know. We don't really care either. We're here to give everybody their money's worth for the show and uh, play rock and roll Los Angeles style. And if people don't enjoy it, they don't have to come and see it. 
But ready for it or not, the show must and will go on. If the group survives its Edmonton experience, it plans to test musical tastes in other Canadian cities in a cross-Canada tour. Margaret O'Sullivan, CBC News, Edmonton. So Too Fast for Love made its number 77 in the US, but went on to sell over a million copies. And the photo of Vince's crotch on the cover is a tip of the hat to the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. And you can check out the podcast Instagram page, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast, and I've got a photo up there of both albums together. So Motley Crue then did five gigs on a Kiss tour, but were kicked off for what Gene said was... And I quote... Bad behaviour. So in April 1983, the band hit Cherokee Studios in Hollywood, which I think is still in operation. Cherokee Studios was called... And I quote... The best studio in America by Beatles producer George Martin in his autobiography Playback, released in 2002. So Motley Crue's second album, Shout at the Devil, was released on September 26, 1983, and it sold over 200,000 copies in the first two weeks. During the recording, Nicky Six crashed a friend's Porsche and damaged his shoulder, and he was prescribed Percocet, which is believed to be what led to his heroin addiction later on. So the album's title and pentagram on the cover caused some controversy, especially in Jesusville, USA. And here's the band talking about the album. They don't understand it, then it's evil. The Shout of the Devil was, um, you know, us kind of rebelling against ourselves, which would become a pattern that you would see for the rest of our career. I also think that it was us accidentally stepping into heavy metal. You know, Nicky would make up these stories like he was playing the bass and then the pick would fly out of his hand and stick in the ceiling and release that. And people would go, oh my God, they're dabbling with the devil. It was just being young and being rebellious, but we were trying to dig underneath the surface and find messages that we could spit back out. And for me, it was always about unifying a message that lots of people could identify with. You know, that's what it's about in an arena. You know, it's an anthem. Many people can scream the same word and all feel unified by that. I think that we're missing that right now a little bit. And Shout at the Devil is our opportunity to take that with things like shout at the devil. It was so simple using that word shout or using bastard and continually pounding that into the audience's head.
lot of people, this was our, our first album, was Shout the Devil. This is where they discovered Motley Crue. Then they went back and found uh, Too Fast for Love. Shout at the Devil was an opportunity to have more money and to have bigger guitars and better drum sounds and uh, you know more time to spend in the studio to sort of craft what it is that we were doing. We have to do something you know better than we did before. We were in the studio for probably at least six, seven months. That album was just everything pushed to 10, including the lyrics. You know, for me as a lyricist, it was pushing the envelope. And I, I, I find it, you know, that, that was a very freeing time musically, even though the A&R people didn't understand. We, we, we really did understand. But accidentally, we became a heavy metal band, when in, in truth is that we were still more of a kind of a punk band. Anything that had an authoritative stance, we were against it. When we came out, people automatically, you know, n not not, you know, the the kids or the fans or the, you know, the guys that went to our shows and stuff. They knew what was going on. It was like new music to them, and but mom and dad didn't understand. It was just noise to them. It was the devil's music. They didn't understand it. The label, Electra Records, at the time, they they um, they had a bad reaction to Shot at the Devil. They they didn't understand why we were moving away from our punk rock and pop roots. They just they they said, you know, we we had a we had a formula. Why don't we stick to it? When they see the pentagram on the front, they're really flipping out now. Even our record company was at the time. I remember sitting there battling with the record company. They're like, you guys can't put a pentagram on your record company. That's just, you know, we're not doing that. We were like, we're doing it. We have to do it. We want it. You notice that in the later copies of Shot at the Devil, it's, it's like us four on the cover and not the pentagram in the second run. And I thought it was like kind of bogus you know, for them to do that. Still to this day, I, people tell me stories all the time of them bringing, sneaking that record into their house through the, you know, behind their parents' back and their mom, their mom or dad walking in going, what is this? And getting, th tossing the record, getting rid of it, whatever. Electra Records at that time, I'm gonna expound on this because you know what, those guys suck. And they were in the hole. We pulled them out of the hole. They made so much money that they became a big label again. As Nicky Six said before, his lyrics on the Shout at the Devil album were quite a bit more full on. And I can remember hearing the album for the first time as a teenager and being a little bit scared but thinking it was cool as fuck. And he's a fully grown adult talking about the lyrics from a few Crew songs from the first two albums. This is Motley Crue. Their albums for Electra Asylum sell millions and they're one of the top 10 grossing concert bands this year. Their albums include songs like Bastard, quote, out goes the light, in goes my knife. Pull out his life, consider that bastard dead. Livewire, quote, I'll either break her face or take down her legs. Get my ways at will. Go for the throat, never let loose, going in for the kill. And too young to fall in love. Not a woman, but a whore. I can taste the hate. Well, now I'm killing you. Watch your face turning blue. Well, now I'm killing you. 
six again talking about it Since the whole concept of shot at the devil and our concept behind that is that the devil may not well isn't to us i mean we're not religious in the sense of uh, devil worshipers or christians or catholics or anything like that I mean, we're just a rock and roll band right um devil could be to a 16 year old girl uh her, her mother or to a 21 year old guy could be his boss and shout at whatever is holding you back from what you want to do. And the American dream for us, we were street kids, and, and the dream for us was to, to be in a rock and roll band and be successful. We've achieved it, and we're saying, go for it. Find this. And the reason why we put it right out here, and we said, look at this. There's yeah, a pentagram. Why, why don't you read? Are we telling these, these um, you know, religious fanatics, read this. Shout at the devil. It doesn't say shout with the devil. Yeah. at the devil and that's why we put the pentagram right on the front of it the, e the evil can't get into you right. so it's actually a good scene like uh, everybody's dream it fantasy it was fantasy exactly it's so funny it's like we always kid around it's our reality it's, I mean, it's fantasy what a way to make a living someone's got to do it <laughs> hey man somebody's got to snort it somebody's got to drink it somebody's <laughs> got to go to bed with all these girls it's a hard life but you know as long as I get paid for it I'll do it I mean so I've just Googled the devil, and it seems he's actually not even a real thing. But anyway, we just heard the band Semi defending that they weren't pushing a satanic element, but there's no doubt that they were using it at a time, especially in America, where it was controversial and using it as a marketing ploy. was that so the album shout at the devil went to number 23 in canada number 17 in the u.s and went on to sell well over four million copies worldwide and had three singles shout at the devil which went to number 30 in the u.s Looks That Kill went to number 54 in the US. Looks That Kill we used to have played years ago. It was, it was around during Too Fast for Love, but we just never recorded it. And then we finally ended up recording well, Actually, songs that were written before Too Fast for Love, they were going to end up on the third album. So what was it like making your video, Looks That Kill? We weren't in the mood, man. It was like 4 in the morning. And this never piss off four drunk guys holding clubs. I mean, never. Torches. Torches that are on Torches. fire. On fire. We got in a fight with this old man. We were standing up there for about five hours with torches, feeling and like lipstick. assholes, and with our lipstick on, and this guy was just giving us problems, and Nikki ended up fucking saying, 
Well, we get just because we wear lipstick, don't mean we can't kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Looks to kill, Motley Crue's new video is staged in a futuristic heavy metal city, and MTV was there for the making of the clip. Group members Nikki Six and Vince Neil explain the concept. It could be a city of the past, a city of the future, um, and what it is is we are like the survivors of it, maybe a holocaust, nuclear war, whatever, and uh, there are these women who are running wild, and we're like the warriors here, and what happens is there is one woman who is like the goddess, the equivalent of us, and together, we all have the looks to kill. Six elaborated on the message the group is trying to make through their music. Everybody, us our, and our audience, who we feel is the same, we have so much aggression in us, we're so young and we have so much you know, power, energy in us. And instead of us going out and robbing liquor stores and beating up old ladies, we play rock and roll. And that's why we want the kids to come see us because we're positive. For music television, this is John Paoli in Los Angeles. See, for me, instead of going out and robbing liquor stores or beating up old ladies, I work here at MTV, but I guess that's a motley crew. That's a pretty wild statement, don't you think, to say it? Well, anyhow. All right, Zip it. Zip. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, exhibit A. When a problem comes along, you must zip it. Zip it good. Would you like to have a suckle of my zipper? Oh, sorry about that. It just seems that even way back in 1984, we had reporters thinking people care about their opinions. And Shout at the Devil also had the single Too Young to Fall in Love that made it to number 90 in the US. Shout at the Devil had pretty much eight original songs, plus the spoken word intro that we heard earlier called In the Beginning, and Mick Mars' instrumental that we also heard called God Bless the Children of the Beast, and also a Beatles cover, Helter Skelter. That you did Helter Skelter. Skelter. Yeah. What inspired that? Well, we used to always do it as an encore in Los Angeles. We used to play uh, club band, you know, in clubs and stuff out there. So we just recorded it and it came out so well and put it on the album. I really like it too. It's amazing, isn't it, that you can update a song like that? I mean, yeah. that was from, what album was that? The White Album. The White Album, I think so, yeah. And now it's updated. Yeah. 
There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs I had to pick some favourite tracks from the super strong album that is Shout at the Devil, I'd probably go with Knock'em Dead Kid, which was inspired by an encounter between Nicky Six and a group of Hells Angels bikers, and he hit one of them in the face with a chain he was wearing as a belt, and it turned out that they were actually undercover police. And you can check out the Arrested episode for a little bit more of that story, and here's some of the demo for Knock'em Dead Kid, and then I'll blend it into the album version. Another highlight from the record for me is a song we heard earlier, and it's Bastard. in Barset were aimed directly at Tipper Gore, who was the second lady of the US from 1993 to 2001. And I'm guessing that the second lady has about as much power as the assistant manager at the reject shop. Hello, David Flint. And in the 80s, Tipper Gore was involved in the PMRC, which is the Parents Music Resource Centre. And I have mentioned these scared of word nerds before somewhere in an episode. And they were the guys who were responsible for placing the warning stickers on albums when the content had swearing, sexual or violent lyrics. All right, zip it. And as I mentioned in that past episode, they actually made bands step up their filth to get a sticker slammed on the front of their albums because kids like me love that shit. The PMRC had a... In a filthy 15, which was the 15 artists they thought were the worst and Motley Crue were on top of that list. Anything to say about those people, they're just making us bigger and bigger by them, you know, 
by the by the story every time they turn around and start rapping some stuff about Motley Crue, you know, as long as they spell our name right and, 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 and print a picture of us, I don't care, man. It's great. I also love the super sleazy 10 seconds to love. Covered 10 Seconds to Love in episode 28's Numbers in the Titles. And I discussed how repulsed I was by those appalling lyrics. Our exhibit. And my favourite song on the record, and it also is probably my favourite Motley Crue song of all time, is the last track, Danger. And I've told this story somewhere before, but I had a tape with Too Fast for Love on one side and Shout at the Devil on the other side, and it couldn't fit Danger on the Shout at the Devil side. Also had a guitar tablature book that had Danger in it. I kind of learned a shitty version of how to play and sing it. And when I finally got the album and heard the proper song, it blew my mind. Super dark lyrics, great creative drumming from Tommy, Venom from Vince's vocals, and one of my favorite Mick Mars guitar solos, and it's part two of what I spoke about earlier which is Mick Mars's great recurring theme solos. And Danger was my first brain guitar lesson in recurring themes and solos. And we heard the song in the booze episode for its gin mentioned in the second verse, but let's check out the whole song here. Red like hair 
solo to me has a lot in common with the solo from On With The Show with a three steps forward, one step backwards idea. Mars is so underrated, so good. So just jumping back in time a bit, during the recording of Shout at the Devil, the band played at the US Festival on May 29th, 1983. The US Festival was a four-day festival that had a bunch of great bands, U2, Bowie, Stevie Nicks, The Pretenders, Willie Nelson, Van Halen, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, The Clash, and even a few Aussie bands like In Excess, The Divinals, and Men at Work. Motley Crue also scored the opening spot on Ozzy Osbourne's 1984 Bark at the Moon tour, and then they headed to Europe in 1984. And here's the band talking about Ozzy Osbourne. The most memorable tour, you know, that uh, I would have to say would be our very first tour, and that was the Ozzy Osbourne tour, and that was nuts. I mean, completely out of control, over the top, later, nuts. Um, Ozzy's like the greatest guy, man. And he taught us so much. We had so much fun. But and Ozzy was just is just like a king, man. He 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 um I mean like the way we treat bands, you know, our, our opening acts is, is the way he treated us. Um I don't know, he's just uh he's like our mentor, you know. We we love the Oz. Ozzy. <laughs> he's choice, man. What are Ozzy's audiences doing for? I mean, the, the, it's the same audience. Yeah, yeah. That's what's really great. I mean, it's not like they're they're being bored with Motley Crue or they're waiting for Ozzy Osbourne. His well, fans are our fans, exactly. you know. It's yeah, a rock and roll event. This it's tour. a great package. Two good good shows. It's, it's I know. From the beginning of our show to the end of his show, it's exciting, and that's uh, you know, it's, it's a good show. When we were on tour with Ozzy, um, we'd always have these crazy parties backstage. He would come onto our bus and say, I'm riding with you guys to the next city. And he'd fucking reach into his into his coat pocket or his pants and pull out. He goes, he'd pull out like two huge bags of cocaine and goes, oh, I've got bags of this shit. And we would fucking, all of us would go back to the back of the bus and we would fucking snort cocaine for fucking, you know, 10 hour bus rides. And we're walking into hotels like the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton's where like, you know, mom and dad, we're a happy family, or up by the pool and everybody's like their little resort. And here comes Molly Crew and Ozzy just fucking blasted. And it was like this out, who can outgross contest, which Nikki kind of started. And all of a sudden we're sitting out by the pool having drinks and Nikki pisses on the ground and goes to lick up his own piss to, to freak Ozzy out. Well, Ozzy beats him to the punch and starts licking up Nikki's piss. And we're like, oh, oh fuck, this is fucked up. What is wrong with you two? And the hotel is freaking out. The security's kicking us out of the pool. This is like they're doing the outgrowth contest, snorting ants, fucking licking up each other's piss. And I'm like, oh, dude, let's just go to the fucking room. Let's just chill out. Come on. And the fucking right and it fucking and it's just going like I'm like, dude, please. I just fucking grab him. Like, come on, take him to the elevator. I find his room, put the key in. I'm like, okay, bud. I like push the door. I'm like, okay, bud, you're in your room. Okay, bye. He's like, no, fucking come in, mate. And I'm like, oh fuck, I almost got out of here. And he pulls me into his room, pulls his pants down, 
and it's just shits on the fucking floor. A fucking big shit on the floor. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, dude, I gotta go. No, fucking come. And he fucking drags me back in, and now he picks up the shit. And he's got it in his hands, and he's just smearing it all over the walls of his fucking hotel room. I'm like, dude, I gotta go. This is fucked up. And I just, I, I just, I remember turning around, and and I just, I saw his his back, and he was just painting with his shit on the walls. And I just fucking was like, now is my chance. And I fucking pinned it out of there, dude. I was like, this is on some other next level shit. Like, I'm not really ready to compete at this level. I'm cool with, you know, taking a shit in the toilet. <laughs> it was one continuous alcoholic, drug-induced tour. I, I, I don't remember the shows, to be honest with you. And around Ozzy, of course, you wouldn't want to pass out drunk or anything because he'd shave your eyebrows. One night, we're on the bus, we're all drinking, doing a ton of cocaine. The sun's coming up. We pull into like, I don't know, must have been, I think it was a, some resort style hotel in Florida. It was a tour of who, who could outgross the next, you know. Ozzy sees a popsicle stick laying on the ground and there's a long trail of ants going to it. And he gets down on his knees and he goes. All these snorting ants one that I found me drunk snorting ants on his thing on him. Crazy stuff. And uh, we're like going, oh dude, that's, that dude's crazy. Um, that record started a lot of um, good and bad for us, you know? The lead singer of the heavy metal band Motley Crue was back in court today. He was ordered to begin serving a 30-day jail sentence for manslaughter and drunk driving. 24-year-old Vincent Neal Warden will surrender himself at the Gardena City Jail on July 14th. Last July, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and drunk driving charges in the head-on crash of his car in December of 1984. A passenger in his car was killed, and two others were hurt. In a plea bargain arrangement, Wharton was ordered to pay $2.6 million to the two injured victims and to the estate of the passenger who died. Jer. Oh, shit. It's about 2,000 o'clock here, and I actually have two gigs this week. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to finish up part one here, and we'll be back next week with part two, and we'll cover Vince's crash, Theatre of Pain, Girls, 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 Nikki dying, and Nikki imposter, Dr. Feelgood, and heaps of other Motley Crue stories. And I hope part one has inspired at least one person to go out and buy these records, or at least, if you already own them, pull them out and give them another spin. Or watch The Dirt on Netflix, or buy one of Nikki's books. He's got a new book out, which I've ordered, but it hasn't arrived yet. The book's called The First 21, and I absolutely love the heroin diaries and the dirt, so I'm really looking forward to reading it. Check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, for all the award-watching episodes and other episodes of the series. I've done deep digs on the Bon Scott years of ACDC, Dalamitri and Justin Curry, Dire Straits and Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones. And in the bonus episodes tab, there's also a Ringo Starr episode. Proudly sponsored by Skilly Wood Tattoos. I'll also pop a Spotify playlist of all the songs used in this episode on the website too. And I still have some sticker and pick packs, so if you're keen, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook, a Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole podcast, and I'll post it out to you for free anywhere in the world. Yep, including Norway. Vashagul. And I haven't forgotten yours, Mark Eberlein. 
please subscribe, rate, review and follow the podcast because that really helps it chart and more people find it. And if you have a friend who listens to podcasts or likes Motley Crue or tolerates bad recurring jokes or just generally likes rock music, please send the podcast to them for a listen. Anyway, enough talking for now. I hope you enjoyed part one of my rabbit hole dig on Motley Crue and I'll see you next week for part two. And I'll definitely check out episode 40 if you're wondering what this is about. How the fuck was that? Thanks again, guys, and we'll see ya.